0: Attention, people of Earth, do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. Directive.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Earth Destruction Directive Podcast. As always, I am your host, Mr. Luke Giaconetti, and we are here to talk about giant monsters, because that's what we do. This is a giant monster podcast. Hope everyone enjoyed our last episode where we talked about the 1991 film, Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah, a personal favorite of mine and very well-regarded Hesai-era film. We're going to be talking about even more of The King of the Monsters today, but we're not going to be doing a film. We're going to be talking about the IDW Godzilla comic book series. In fact, we're going to be talking about a whopping eight issues of the book and get caught up from number uh, three all the way to issue number ten and uh, just get us caught up to where we are. This is the latest issue I have as of the date of me recording this. Uh, yeah, I do not recommend recovering this many comic books in a single podcast when you're by yourself. This is why this episode has taken so long for me to do, just to have time to read and take notes and everything on uh, on all these comics. But it's a good book, and I'm looking forward to talking to you folks about it. And uh, we are going to get right into it right after these quick messages.
2: Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. I'm Batman. like a job for Superman you two, two,
1: Comics monthly Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at two true com Okay, welcome back to the Earth Destruction Directive. Previously, we had talked about the first two issues of uh, IDW's second Godzilla series, this one simply titled Godzilla, so we're going to be picking up with issue three. Uh, Godzilla, number three, by IDW, was written by Dwayne Swierzynski, with artist uh, Simon Gain, colorist Rhonda Pattinson, le- letterer and creative consultant Chris Malry, and editor Bobby Curnow. Uh The story is entitled Part Three, This Time It's Personal. In Edinburgh, Scotland, Boxer and his team, Irv, the explosives expert, Harrison, the wheelman, and Claire, the scientist, are on the run from the monster, Angurus. Using Claire's headache beam, they are able to drive Angurus towards Landmark Castle, which sits, apparently, on top of a dormant volcano. Irv then triggers a massive explosion, and they defeat Angurus. and the team go on to claim their demanded $7 billion reward. The team then goes after the other monsters who have plagued them, first getting a measure of revenge for Irv on Kumonga, then trying to capture Rodan in a giant net, but the monster simply flies away. And then they best Batra as well. Responding to a report of a dinosaur rampaging in Tokyo, the team flies off to investigate, but end up face-to-face with Rodan. Uh, this is a this is a, ep- issue kind of sets the stage for how this story is going to go. It's very fast-paced, There's a lot of action, and there's a lot of monsters. You know, one of the real problems with um, Kingdom of Monsters, the previous IDW series, was there was a lot of talk and a lot of humans and not a whole lot of monster action. This series uh, does not do that. I have cover number A. Uh, Number A! Wow! I have cover A, which is uh, art by Zach Howard and covers by Nelson Daniel, which features uh, Boxer in the foreground running like hell from... Uh, Angurus rolled up in a ball, rolling after them. Amazing uh, how quickly the idea of Angurus rolling into a ball and rolling around caught on after Final Wars. I think everyone actually just loves it so much that it's caught on. Um, Simon Gain is the artist, and I love his work. His work reminds me a lot of uh, almost like graffiti style. Uh, I think the probably the it's hard to explain. It's very gritty, very detailed. Um, but also a bit cartoony at the same time. It's hard to explain. It's really a neat look and his look for humans and monsters, as well as all the debris of all these destroyed cities and everything, really looks nice. Uh, just overall, I really like Simon Gain on this work and he's a much better artist than any of the other... I shouldn't say much better. He's a more appropriate artist than we had for any of the um, issues of Kingdom of Monsters, so really good work here out of Simon Gain. Uh, page two. First big panel, we've got Angurus again rolling right down on Boxer, Harrison, and Claire as they're trying to fix her headache cannon, and he's knocking a double-decker bus, and a military truck, and commuter cars, just smashing them all over the way, and you see all sorts of debris flying up around him, and uh, just a great image with this his ball with all the spikes sticking out. Uh, it's you know somebody like Angurus who doesn't have a, a breath weapon and he can't fly, and you know giving him a power like this is not only something that makes sense, it also is something that's visually very unique, especially in Toho's pantheon of monsters, so I really like it, and I'm glad that it gets play here. Uh, then, continuing on page four, he continues to roll, and you actually see that he has now impaled several vehicles on his spikes as he's rolling, so he's picking up stuff uh, as he's going a to... wasn't it a PlayStation game like that? Something like that. Uh, page seven panel one as boxer uses the headache cannon on uh, anris we get a great great profile shot of angie here Uh really good detail on his face as he roars his defiance which is a ee-ow-wah. it's always hard to put Anguirus's roar into comics. I found just because it's it's so unique, but this looks great And I love the profile and then panel three on this same page He's getting hit again, and he's rearing back as the he gets hit right in the jaw the lower jaw uh, With the headache cannon and he's just Is what it says looks great and uh, Boxer's line here is that's right you bastard. I hope you're having the worst hangover of your horny life I don't know why Boxer's Australian. I think he's actually British uh, page eight again. We get to see uh, really a neat uh, shot here. It's a long uh, shot of Angurus standing amidst Edinburgh as they're driving him back towards Landmark Castle. And again, he's getting hit right in the jaw with the headache beam, and he's actually knocking the spire off of—I don't know if it's a tower. I can't—I can't see exactly what it is, but he's knocking it off kind of by accident as he's backing up. And so I thought that was pretty neat. Uh, then. Um, let's see, that was page 10, we get uh, the explosion. And this is a full-page panel here of Angurus in this gigantic volcanic explosion. And uh, we get a very nice hand-lettered sound effect of boom across the bottom. And it's in this uh, kind of volcanic-looking... Uh, text, and uh, it's all just reds and oranges, and we see Anguirus in silhouette. Reminds me a lot of the end of Godzilla 1985, where we see Godzilla's silhouette in the volcano at Mount Mahara. And then on the next page, on page 11, panel 1, we see Anguirus just lying there at the bottom of the crater, and his jaws hanging slack, and and, uh, Harrison's uh, caption, because Harrison doesn't talk, is, I could hardly believe it. And then Claire says, I can't believe it. And then uh, Herb says, me neither. And Fox says, "Believe it, ladies and gentlemen, we are in business." So they've defeated their first monster. Uh, then we get to uh, we cut to New Mex or New Mexico, where we get to see uh, Kumonga getting blasted back with the headache cannon. Irv is not really happy. He doesn't seem to get much out of this revenge, but considering that they killed his uh, the love of his life or Kumanga did. That's not too surprising. But you get to see a neat panel here again of uh, this volcano, or in this case, it's a cave that Irv detonates and goes, choom, 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 choom. There's six chooms all over the page as uh, they bury Kumonga in rubble. In Brazil, they try to fight uh, Rodan, but on page 16, panels one and two, uh, Harrison tells us that Boxer had paid half a million, oh, excuse me, f- yeah, five, it says 500,000 million I think they mean $500,000 or half a million. I think that's a lettering mistake. For a customized electrified Kevlar net to catch Rodan. Half a billion wasted right there. No, I think they mean 500 million. Yeah, it's. Basically, Rodan just flies right over it. And all I could think of with that was in Gator the Three-Headed Monster when. The fairies, a Rodan is um, and Godzilla are talking to Mothra, and the fairies are translating. And Mothra says he'll simply fly away. Well, that's what, exactly what he does. Then we go to uh, South Korea, and they take on Batra, and they're able to use the headache gun to catch him in the net. The net came in handy after all, and uh, so they they've captured Batra, and uh, now they're you know they're continuing on where and uh, Boxer says that. Uh, He's going to do the Grey Lizard for free, he still wants revenge on Godzilla for killing his charge, and he is going to stop at nothing to get him. And we get a little cameo from Godzilla on page 21 in St. Louis, uh, destroying the uh, St. Louis Arch as uh, the traditional uh, method of of monsters appearing in cities to destroy a landmark. And then on page 22, the last panel, as they're flying in on this big... um, big chopper into Tokyo, Uh, we see sitting in the, uh, it's Claire and Harrison are piloting the chopper, and uh, we see Boxer poke his head around Harrison and go, the hell was that Harrison? And Harrison goes, that's exactly what it was, hell. And we see Rodan flying directly at them. And uh, next it says, you don't assign him a monster, you just turn him loose. I really enjoyed this issue. I thought it was a lot of fun. The way that they fight Anguirus makes a lot of sense. You can't take on a monster uh, head-on, so you've got to trick them and lure them into just something else in order to stop them. And, you know, the idea of the dormant volcanoes, an old trope in uh, Daikaiju, I mean, just watch War of the Gargantuas and you get that. But it works really well here, and, and I like that they're uh, all over the country, or excuse me, all over the world. They, they're in Europe, they're in North America, they're in South America, they're in... Uh, Uh, Asia, so they're all over the place, and that's neat, it really does have a nice global feeling to it. Again, Gaines' artwork is is fantastic, the characters all have really good voices, Uh, well except for Harrison obviously doesn't talk, but even him, Harrison gets to narrate most of these issues including this one, so we get a lot of insight into what Harrison's thinking. Again, just heads and shoulders above uh, the previous series, so good issue on uh, number three of Godzilla. Godzilla number four from IDW is entitled You Don't Assign Him a Giant Monster, You Just Turn Him Loose. And the uh, creative team is exactly the same as before. Writer Dwayne Swierzynski, artist Simon Gain, colorist Rhonda Pattinson, letterer creative consultant Chris Mallory, editor Bobby Kernow. Titanosaurus rages in Tokyo, and Boxer's team, which you'll recall ended up face to face with Rodan, is clipped in their chopper by Rodan's giant wing. After turning the headache cannon on him in revenge, Rodan creates a massive gust of wind which sends their helicopter flying, embedding it in the side of a skyscraper. The two titans clash, each one gaining the upper hand for a moment before the momentum shifts once more. Meanwhile, Irv rigs up packs of explosives with parachutes, dropping them on the monsters and eventually dropping a building on them. Rodan escapes again, but Titanosaurus is captured. On Hunt Atoll in the South Pacific, a.k.a. Monster Island, Titanosaurus arrives and joins his fellow captured monsters. Two strange men talk about the potential of the monsters, including the idea of selling them as tamed and weaponized creatures, which will be priceless once they capture him. Godzilla then lands in San Diego and Boxer and his crew head there, Boxer claiming that they won't stop this until Godzilla is dead. Little do they know that Ms. Murakami, the mother of the girl that died in Boxer's care during Godzilla's original attack, is also in San Diego, and she wants answers. Another good issue, another lot of action, a big monster fight kinda dominates this issue. Uh, I have cover B, which is by Matt Frank, and it depicts uh, Rodan looking a lot like his fire Rodan self, and Titanosaurus clashing in the middle of Tokyo, and uh, Rodan is landing kind of a kick right in Titanosaurus's uh, chest and knocking him down. All the covers are these are good, there's usually three covers per issue. Um, the cover A is by Zach Howard, and it's just a close-up of Titanosaurus's face, cover B is the Matt Frank, and cover, the Retailer Incentive cover is by Jeff Zornow, and Zornow has this really nice painted style, and it's uh, it's got Titanosaurus and Rodan fighting, and Titanosaurus is whipping Rodan the head with a commuter train, which is, is pretty funny. Uh, page 2, panel 1. Uh, this panel takes up about 80% of the page, and it's Titanosaurus, standing tall, looking fantastic. Titanosaurus is a monster that has a ton of potential, and I really like Titanosaurus. He's very much a throwback. Uh, you know, He was introduced in 1974 amidst all these other crazy space monsters, and he's just this kind of regular old school earth monster. He's a dinosaur that fights with tooth and claw. I really like titanosaurs and his coloring is great. The red is a very deep crimson here and the uh, the fins and his uh, tail are almost a, uh, almost like a peach color. And so they really, it really looks sharp and he really looks good. Uh, page six, panels one, two, and three. Rodan uses his wings to create the gale force uh, weapon, which uh, I always liked that. I loved that as a kid, anytime Rodan would flap his wings and send something flying. In this case, on uh, panel one, we just see his two wingtips coming in from the left-hand side and it's boom, and the letters get bigger as we go up, and we see the uh, remainder of the chopper spinning end over end. In panel two, it, it's just floating through the sky, and in panel three, it actually cuts the corner of uh, one skyscraper with a CRUSH and continues like a missile onto the next page where it embeds itself uh, almost completely into the building. It's just the basically the cargo hatch in the back that's sticking out the side. And uh, <laughs> Boxer says, bollocks, I'm right back where I started. Yeah. I, like I said, I'm a big fan of Rodan, so anytime he uses his wings to create a gale force wind, uh, I like it. Uh, Page 8 and 9 is a uh, two-page spread with a couple inset panels of uh, Boxer's team as Rodan swoops down on Titanosaurus from the top. This is the first monster fight in this series, and it's a doozy. It continues on for about eight pages here, and they just go back and forth. Uh, They use the headache uh, cannon on both monsters. It doesn't seem to do anything uh, to Titanosaurus, but it, it bugs Rodan a little bit, but they still Eventually they just kind of give up on the monsters just going back and forth while Irv makes his plan uh, You know, we see Titanosaurus knocking a building over with his tail onto Rodan, Rodan um, using winds to knock a building into Titanosaurus and send Titanosaurus crashing back. In fact um, Top of page, there's no page numbers here. Let's see. This is uh... 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, we see uh, actually Tysanotaurus' feet as he skids to a stop after being blown back by Rodan, that's pretty neat, and there's cars of course flying everywhere as they're doing this, and the two battle back and forth Um, then on uh, page 15 all I could think of here as the bombs go off and uh, the two monsters are buried, I could think of was Strong Bad, drop a house on them and maybe that reference is out of date, but I couldn't, I couldn't help myself, I loved it um, also, one knows I, I really like. I mentioned uh, before that tit- uh, Anguirus's roar is tough to do in comics. Titanosaurus is also a little hard to do because it's so an aw- such an odd sound. Uh, we get a good one here, which is ra ra raak. So pretty close, I think. If you're gonna, again, a hard thing to do in in uh, any type of uh, print media. Uh, the, uh, on page 17, the helicopters are carrying Titanosaurus in a giant net, and uh, there's like 15 helicopters carrying him, and all I could think of, wow, he must be a lot heavier than King Kong, and King Kong Escapes, they carried him with four helicopters. But good to see uh, monsters being carried by helicopters, that was all I could think of was King Kong Escapes. Uh, page 19, Godzilla finally appears in this issue, uh, landing in San Diego, and uh, he is immediately attacked by the Navy, which makes sense considering that it's, you know, San Diego. Uh, He, he, you know, causes some carnage, blows up a nuclear sub, which is always nice. But clearly this is the setup for the next issue. The final uh, panel of the issue is Godzilla um, standing before a full moon uh, bellowing, and uh, Boxer's inset of, we won't stop until Godzilla's dead, which I thought was very nice. Again, another really good issue, Uh, more action. Anytime we get giant monsters fighting for more than like two pages... Which is, again, that was one of the problems with Kingdom of Monsters, and I'm going to stop talking about Kingdom of Monsters after this comment, except um, where I have to. I kind of banged myself into a corner there because I have to talk about Kingdom of Monsters a little bit later. Anyway, um, it's it's an extended fight between two monsters, and that's kind of what we're looking for in a giant monster comic book. At least that's what I'm looking for. So I was very happy with that. Uh, strong issue. Again, we, we find out some little bit more about the mindset of the team. Uh, you know, Harrison is really kind of our gateway. We don't get to know Irv or Claire too much because they mostly spend time yelling at Boxer. But Harrison has a lot of insight, and because he doesn't speak, he's only thinking, he can say things about the other characters. So it was. That's nice, and, and again, I don't ask for much from humans in my, my monster comics, other than to not be irritating and obnoxious, and in this case, they're actually pretty interesting, so that's that's a bonus, you know. And again, a, another good fight that we've never seen in the movies, Rodan and Titanosaurus have never been on screen together, so putting them together, and two tooth and nail style monsters, again, you know, you can't, uh, that that's what I'm looking for out of a Godzilla comic, and so I'm very glad to get it in this case. Godzilla number six, once again by the usual suspects, writer Dwayne Swierzynski, artist Simon Gain, colorist Rhonda Pattison, later a career consultant Chris Mallory and editor Bobby Curnow, is entitled Part Five, The Mission is a Giant Monster. Billionaire Daniel Malman announces on pay-per-view his plan to use a new weapon against Godzilla uh, in a battle you will be able to watch in action for just a small fee. Meanwhile, in the San Fernando Valley, Boxer's crew is in pursuit of Godzilla himself. While Harrison is hotwiring a car to get them some wheels, Boxer saves him from Godzilla's tail, saying that they never remember the tail, and he accidentally reveals himself to be Harrison's father. But there's no time for sentiment, as Melman suddenly lands in the massive Mechagodzilla. The monster and the machine battle, and eventually Godzilla leaves his robotic duplicate laying low. In the aftermath of the fight, Boxer and his team are surrounded by reporters, but then quickly arrested on an undisclosed location in the Pacific Rim. A young girl named Hakari works in a lab on a plan, which will make the giant monsters fall in love, huh? Uh, More on that in a little bit. Uh, For this one, I have cover uh, standard cover, which is by Zack Howard and features uh, Godzilla and the Kiru Mechagodzilla struggling uh, back and forth. Godzilla's actually grabbing uh, Kiru's jaw and there's blood coming out of his hand, I'm guessing from those sharp uh, robot teeth that he has, because all robots need teeth and a tail. You know, it made sense with the first Mechagodzilla because he was dis- disguised as Godzilla. Beyond that, though, it starts getting a little bit toy heavy. Uh, page five, we get a giant Godzilla foot, and anyone who listens to this show knows I love a giant monster foot just stomping down like something out of Monty Python, and we get it here as the team is running away, and, uh... Boxer's great line of scatter (laughs) is a a little obvious, and uh, it's a great shot where we see um, I say Godzilla's foot right in the center of the panel. We see a bunch of cars flying and debris flying and uh, Harrison and Boxer are thrown uh, to the right and Irv and Claire are thrown to the left. They're just completely uh, (laughs) uh, Just blown all over the place by this giant foot landing Um, On page 8 this is uh, when Boxer is revealed as uh, Harrison's father, and um, it's it's kind of a, a real, again it's an emotional scene for a comic, this series that has been very action-oriented, and I think you can tell from my synopsis there's been a lot of action, so there's not a huge amount of story here, it's mostly the concept and then the, the giant monsters, but there's a real good bit of emotion here. Um, Harrison is trying to hotwire the car, we see Godzilla's tail coming, Boxer runs over, punches out the window, and then pulls Harrison out, and he says, can't lose you, can't lose you both. And then we get Harrison's uh, internal monologue talking about that the reason for his vow of silence, and that he was nine years old when Boxer walked out on him and his mother, and he vowed he would never speak again until Boxer came home and resolved it, and he's still not ready to speak to, to Boxer yet. But the... Uh, the, the moment is cut short, as I said, because on page 10 and 11 is a... Uh, basically, it's a one-and-a-half-page spread of the Mechagodzilla landing in the San Fernando Valley. And we get uh, Daniel Malman, this eccentric uh, nutjob billionaire, um, announcing through the Mechagodzilla speakers, Citizens of the San Fernando Valley, do not despair. The mighty, all-new Mechagodzilla is here to save you. And um, now... <laughs> this is a kind of a, an odd thing about this series. Technically, this series does take place in the same universe as Godzilla Kingdom of Monsters. The scene in issue one with Boxer in Washington, D.C., depicts Godzilla's attack on D.C. from Kingdom of Monsters. So the continuity's a little dodgy, because a lot of the things that happen in Kingdom of Monsters are kind of just glossed over. But here, they're kind of called on directly because... Um, when the mecha godzilla showed up in Kingdom of Monsters it eventually not eventually within the span of a few pages was defeated and then went berserk and then destroyed Atlanta and uh, so Malman talks about the government the government didn't have the money or the will to rebuild mecha godzilla uh, so uh, we're already referring to something that happened in the previous series and it's you know it's it's mostly ignored Kingdom of Monsters but it's required it at this point and you know it's it's okay. You know it it you need it at that point, and that's it's fine. It it's it serves the purpose here of showing that they're in the same uh, universe rather than just a new one. But either one would have been acceptable. The fight between Godzilla and Mech Godzilla is is good. Uh, uh, the team is kind of caught in the crossfire while they're doing this, and Claire is uh, making the point that you know maybe he'll take care of this problem for us. Uh, Boxer doesn't buy it, and Melman's an idiot, so that's not real surprising. Page 12, panel 1, we see the Mechagodzilla using his uh, chest cannon, and uh, I've got a question, is this the absolute zero cannon, or is this the triple maser? Which version of Kiru is this? And uh, that's um, that's a little bit of uh, millennium era humor for you. Uh, then page 18, we get a beam clash between Godzilla and the Mechagodzilla, and uh, of course Godzilla's beam is stronger, and he crashes the Mechagodzilla to the ground, and uh, right on his face. And uh, Godzilla just walks off into the sunset, uh, as Mechagodzilla is left there smoking. And then the team, of course, is arrested, and this will lead directly into the next issue. Uh, the last page: uh, our character Hakari that we meet. Um, she's kind of your stereotypical young, uh, you know, preteen—well, maybe not preteen—young teen, uh, super smart Asian girl. And she'll play an interesting role over the next couple of issues. But this idea of making the giant monsters fall in love. It's not as stupid as it sounds, so just stick with it. Um, this was a pretty good issue. I didn't like this one as much as some of the previous ones. First off, uh, just anything that calls back to Kingdom of Monsters kind of leaves a kind of ashy taste in my mouth. Um, and and this was kind of scattered and a little bit a little bit uh, quick. Uh, almost as if it was feeling a couple pages short, but it's full. So it's just the lack of depth sometimes in these issues can be. Uh, Kind of a detriment, but it's not bad. It's still enjoyable. I still enjoy reading it every month. But it's a little, it's a little thin overall. I think this uh, story, the story is set to run for 13 issues. It probably could have been done in eight, but they're, they're putting it out to 13. So you get issues like this where not a whole lot happens. But that's okay. I mean, for an issue that not a whole lot happens, we still get a fight between uh, Mechagodzilla and Godzilla. Who can argue with that, right? Godzilla number six from IDW, was written by Dwayne Swierzynski, the artist is Dave Wachter this time out, colorist Rhonda Pattinson, uh, letterer creative consultant Chris Malry, editor Bobby Kurnow, and the title is Part 6, They Had Nothing Left to Lose But Each Other. Godzilla travels up the Pacific Coast Highway before running into Mothra. The monster god does not fight Godzilla, but still manages to drive him into the sea where he cannot hurt innocent people. Meanwhile, Boxer and his team are being held at an undisclosed location somewhere in California, where Ms. Morikami dresses them down and threatens them with lifelong incarceration for their actions. Boxer is defiant, and the team is thrown into cells, but Irv has hidden explosives on... his... person... and busts them out. At him Laboratory, Hikari explains to Dr. Pole, her benefactor, or at least her overseer, that the pheromone she has developed will be able to act as a lord to the monsters, taking them wherever they want. That is what she meant by making them fall in love. Uh, meanwhile, at the UN, Mothra's twin fairies address the assembled nations, only to end up being held at gunpoint by angry California state troopers, demanding that they make the monsters somehow leave the Golden State. As our heroes, quote unquote heroes, escape the authorities, Irv and Harrison head off on a different mission, while Boxer and Claire head off in a Humvee. But they also run into Mothra, who zaps Claire and fills her head with visions of a trio of space monsters who are will destroy the Earth. As Godzilla arrives in Seattle, Claire tells Boxer that she thinks they are on the wrong side. Again, there was multiple covers for this issue. I have the standard cover, which is by Zack Howard, which shows Godzilla uh, taking a swipe out of the Space Needle and uh, firing his beam off. While uh, Mothra flies in behind him in a little inset box, we have the twin fairies looking uh, twinly and fairyly, as always. Uh, the entire Godzilla and Mothra sequence, is, is, which takes place over the first half of the book, is very neat. There's a basically a family driving in a minivan trying to escape Godzilla, who's chasing them up the Pacific Coast Highway, and there's no place for them to go. And so they get stuck in the middle between Godzilla and Mothra, and uh, it's, it's very funny because, you know, the little girl in the back has got her uh, headphones in and doesn't know what's going on. Just an amusing little comedy beat. Um, I have a question here. Why did Boxer and his team get captured? Uh, they've been to escape the authorities before, so I don't understand why they got captured this time. Harrison says that it was intentional, that he said, uh, no, he wanted us to be thrown into those cells because he knew Irv could get us out of them, and, and that's true, and Irv does. He's got a uh, piece of explosive uh, in a tooth that he pulls out, and he's got a um, uh, primer cord up his nose. It was a great panel of him actually pull, yanking it out one of his nostrils. And that's all well and good, but what do they gain by being captured? There's absolutely no explanation as to why they're what they gain, what the benefit is of being captured, other than to have a cliffhanger at the end of the previous issue. I thought that was really kind of weak. It it was a good cliffhanger, but it doesn't go anywhere, and they resolve it like 10 pages into this without any real drama. I mean, it's one page of Irv making this bomb and then blowing the doors off, and then they've escaped, so... I guess I can't all be winners in that respect. Pages 14 and 15 is a beautiful double page spread of Mothra as she encounters Harry, um, not Harrison Boxer and Claire and uh, zapping the uh, uh, ground and the road all around them with pink lightning style energy. Mothra really looks great in this splash. Uh, you know, the thing about Mothra is her wings have always really translated well to comics just because they're so colorful and so bright and you can do a lot with them. She literally looks nice here. Uh, the claws look nice, uh, does a nice layer of fur, is it got the white instead of the yellow, which is always a little odd. Uh, the only thing I ever saw as a kid, uh, Mothra in the moth form, was Godzilla vs. the Thing, where she's definitely kind of yellow, but in this case she's white, so it still looks good. Uh, page 17, panels 2 and 3. The space monsters first appear to Claire in shadow, and, and any Godzilla fan knows who they are. We've got the two vertical eyes. Uh, that's clearly Hedra. And then we've got uh, two giant crystals with a third... Uh, kind of arrow-shaped crystal in the middle, and that's clearly Space Godzilla. And then the third, we've got a big uh, red visor and two silver hooks, and that's very clearly Gigan. And so in the third panel, then they are revealed fully, and we get to see our first glimpse of the space monsters, and they all look uh, great. One thing about the space monsters that Toho came up with in the 70s and in in the 90s too, because that's where Space Godzilla comes from, they all had great looks, and that's why they've proven so popular as bad guys over the years, is that you know, yeah, maybe their movies might not have been the greatest, but those monsters had great designs, and that carries over here as well. Um, then the uh, the bit with the United Nations, with the California Highway Patrol, or the California State Police, or whatever they are, they're not actually identified, other than on the badge, you can see it says California, um, holding the Twin Fairies hostage with M16s, and then threatening to blow up the UN if they don't make them leave, that was, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't, mean to sound harsh, but that was stupid. I mean, that was just stupid. It doesn't serve any point. It, it's unbelievable that these guys would be able to break into the UN with with M-16s like this, let alone set up bombs around the UN. So, I don't know. That kind of took me out of it. I was like... I'd forgotten about that after I read it the first time, because it really doesn't get played out here. It's just kind of a filler scene. In fact, I kind of feel that way about a lot of this issue. It feels almost like they get captured because they had to make them escape, and so they have this show at the UN because, well, we need to fill in a few more pages. This gets to what I was talking about, that this feels kind of like an 8-issue story that's being padded out to 13, and this is one of those kind of scattered, padded sort of issues. Uh, the final page, I do want to talk about this, Godzilla shows up at lands uh, in Seattle, and so of course first thing he does is destroy the Space Needle. And uh, in the Godzilla series by Marvel Comics, in issue number two of that, which I covered Ooh, a while back, now on Back to the Bins, uh, Godzilla did the same thing. He destroyed the space needle. In fact, the cover of that is Godzilla attacking the space needle when he lands in Seattle, Washington. So, nice little callback to the uh, Marvel series there, intentional or otherwise. Again, yeah, this issue is kind of a the, the good. The sequence with Godzilla and Mothra on the Pacific Coast Highway is neat, and the sequence of Mothra giving Claire the visions is is very good and very important for the coming story. But overall, this was kind of a weak issue, and I. I'm sorry to say it feels mostly like padding more than anything else, and you know that happens, but at $399, that, that's that's a, a bitter pill to swallow. And if I could talk for a minute about the art. As I said, Simon Gain doesn't do this, it's uh, Dave Wachter, and his art is, is not bad, it's a little more uh, realistic, I think, than uh, Simon Gain's in certain respects, there's a great shot. Um, here, where we see a close-up of boxer, and he looks—he looks like a mix between like Vin Diesel and Channing Tatum, if that makes any sense. Uh, but it's—it's it's a little, you know, it's—it's—it's it's, it's a little different than Simon Gaines. It's not bad. I prefer Gaines, but. He's got a good dynamic style, and he draws monsters really well, so that's mostly the main thing that I'm looking for. Like I said, his Mothra looks fantastic. The uh, sequence of the visions with the space monsters looks really good. So yeah, no, no real drop off, it's clearly a different artist, but it's not I don't get the feeling that this was a, a fill in so much as maybe Gain needed a break or had another assignment because it really looks good. So it doesn't stand out too much, except that it's the only one really like it. But uh, good artist and um, not bad from an art fill in. Again, the issue itself is a little weak, but that's not the artist's fault. So uh, moving on. Godzilla number seven from IDW. Again, writer Dwayne Swierzynski. Artist is once again Simon Gain. Colorist Rhonda Pattison letter of creative consultant Chris Mallory, editor Bobby Curnow, the title Part 7, the government gave them a choice, now there's no turning back. I, like say, I do like these very dramatic titles that these uh, comics have gotten. Now, Boxer, Irv, Harrison, and Claire waited out in Vancouver, British Columbia, as Boxer strongly suspects that that will be Godzilla's next target city. As they wait for nearly a full month, avoiding the authorities and slowly going stir-crazy, the, teams go, the team grows closer, including... Oxer and Harrison. Finally, on day 27, Godzilla lands, and the team springs into action, using small explosive charges to drive him towards Mount Garibaldi, a potentially active volcano 50 miles north of the city. Irv has lined the entire mountain with explosives, enough to create a chain reaction that will hopefully melt Godzilla in lava. As Godzilla is driven towards Mount Garibaldi, a black helicopter arrives, uh, spraying mist at the monster. Godzilla turns and follows the chopper instead. Boxer urges Irv to abort, but it is too late. All Irv can do is minimize the damage and not melt Vancouver for no reason. Trapped in the mountain, Irv envisions himself with his dead lover, Eduardo, and perishes. Tears rimming his eyes, Boxer says he wants to go find the black helicopter that killed Irv. Now this is a a better issue than the previous one. Now this is kind of a a big change of pace, because normally these stories take place over a matter of hours. Uh, Here it's a whole month, and we see the team waiting it out and waiting it out and little captions saying what day it's been and it's, uh, it just goes on and on, the boredom sitting in. Uh, page 3, Godzilla has a nice uh, full page spread here uh, as he's wading off the ruins of Seattle and he's getting attacked by uh, army helicopters and we see the, the shadow of Seattle in the background engulfed in flames, very nice little uh, one page piece, that'd be a nice piece of uh, original art uh, with all the inks and everything, that'd probably look really neat. And I'm not a big original art guy, but that does look pretty cool. Uh, page 7, panels 3 and 4. Um, this is day 4 of the uh, wait, and the team's playing cards. And uh, there's just a great little conversation here uh, between Boxer and Claire, where uh, Boxer goes, You ever wonder why we didn't work out, you and I? And uh, Claire says, Never, you were a borderline narcissist with a serious vi- uh, violence issues and a crippling fear of anything even remotely resembling commitment. And Boxer says, I mean, besides that. And then in the next, page, next panel, we get a, a little wordless panel of the two of them looking at each other. They've got very cute, wry smiles on their faces. And uh, just a, a nice little character moment. There's a lot of really good character beats in this uh, issue because there's a lot of downtime for the team. They finally kind of catch up on, on some of this. Um, we also get a, a nice scene where Harrison and Irv, excuse me, Harrison and Boxer, are. Uh, they're basically walking along the shoreline. And uh, Boxer tries to talk to uh, Harrison, trying to draw him out to speak, and they end up having to dive down from the Vancouver police boat, and, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's again, it's just a good scene of showing the relationship and the growing uh, forgiveness from Harrison towards his father that he resented for so long and that they're working so closely together on this uh page nine, <laughs> the boredom is starting to get get out of here uh get out of uh, hand a little bit by day twenty five uh boxer has is has his hands and he's making little pantomimes of monsters and uh and army uh vehicles and making sound effects going pachoo, pachoo, pachoo and uh Harrison's uh caption is by that time nearly a month in. Uh, even Boxer was losing it, and I just, I just, that made me laugh. I, anytime a grown man breaks up, you, got, you gotta you got like that. So, um, page 14 and 15, Godzilla is being nudged along by the explosions. This is a wonderful two-page spread, and it's kind of a, uh, an abstract piece, because there's actually uh, four different images of Godzilla here, and set into it are small panels of, um, Boxer sending the cell signals to each of the small detonated charges that they're driving along with. But it's very nice as we see moving from left to right, Godzilla is getting closer and closer to us until the final Godzilla is uh, almost a close up of his face, and you see the fire reflected in his eyes as he roars his defiance. It's a very neat sequence to show them driving the King of Monsters where they want to get him. Um, Page 17, uh, panel five, Uh, on page 17, while they're driving him, they say Claire was taking care of public safety and she breaks into a newscast and she holds a gun to the anchor's head and uh, as she tells everyone to evacuate the greater Vancouver area, the newscaster says, Miss, I may have soiled myself. And I thought that was really great. Um, This whole sequence here that ends the book with Irv in the volcano is uh, as he's desperately trying to cut wires and um, you know, stop himself or stop the as much of the chain reaction as he can is really, really dramatic, very excitingly done. But it's it's clear that it's kind of a losing effort. Uh, it's very interesting here because on uh, on page 18, uh, as he's frantically cutting wires, the last panel, which is panel uh, seven, is completely black. And Harrison's comment is, "We'll never know what happened during Irv's last moments in that cave." And then on page 19. Um, Irv looks up and he sees Eduardo still dressed in the tuxedo from issue one and uh, Eduardo of course was uh, Irv's lover the two were getting married when Kumunga destroyed the church and killed everyone inside but Irv and um, you know Irv says, you know, I always thought I'd go up in one of my own explosions. I mean, this line of work, you kind of expect it. Occupational hazard and all. I just never thought it would feel like this. And it's him and Eduardo at Bracing. And uh, then uh, then page 21, the first panel, we see a giant explosion ripping off half of Mount Garibaldi, but um, it, it is just a minor explosion relative to the eruption that they were going to create, so Irv saved the city even though he gave his life. And uh, the last panel um, Claire and Boxer and Harrison are all holding each other and tears are streaming down the face of Claire and Harrison and and Boxer. The first real sign of emotion we've seen from him other than rage is uh, is right here as we see just in his right eye a single tear is welling up and uh, he does not look happy that they killed his friend and, and you know... Good to have uh, a better story this issue than, than we did in the last one. I really like this one. Uh, again, Godzilla plays front and center. And I like the other monsters too, and I like that we're getting all of them, but good to see uh, the Big G be the star of this one. But then the character bits as well as the combination with the action. I thought this was just a really good issue all told. Oh, I didn't mention the cover. Uh, I got the standard cover, which is by E.J. Sue. It features Godzilla in some rubble with a boxer standing above him with a bazooka aiming right at his eye. Not a scene that happens in the book, but a good scene nonetheless. The Retailer Incentive cover is by Matt Frank, and it's actually pretty neat. It's got uh, Boxer standing defiantly, and uh, Godzilla about to step on him from above. So kind of a, uh, again, not something that happens in the issue, but a a good good image for a cover. Uh, Again, good strong issue this time out. Um, I think we're, we kind of, it feels like we might have gotten our filler out of the way, and we're kind of hitting our stride, so uh, we're going to move right along. Godzilla number eight. Uh, Usual, same crew again. Uh, Writer, Dwayne Swierzynski. Artist, Simon Gain. Colorist, Rhonda Patterson. Letterer, creative consultant, Chris Mowry. Editor, Bobby Kernow. Our title, part eight. Somewhere, somehow, something is going to pay. As Boxer, Harrison, and Claire run after the Black Helicopter, they are also on the run from Godzilla. In the dust and commotion, Boxer loses Claire and Harrison is badly hurt, now physically unable to speak as well as psychologically. Up on the chopper, Hikari confronts Dr. Pole, saying that she thought they were going to use the Paramount only to contain Godzilla, to which Pole disregards her concerns as not seeing the big picture. Loring Godzilla to their perimeter, Pole orders an energy cage erected around the monster, and Goji is then captured by the crackling energy. Hikari leaves and finds Boxer trying to help Harrison at a hospital, telling him all about her pheromone and Dr. Pole's plan to capture Godzilla. But right then, an atmospheric disturbance signals the arrival of four monsters from space who all attack different corners of the world. The twin fairies describe the horrors to the UN, and Boxer realizes that he has to bust Godzilla out of the box. Uh, another good issue this time out, uh, nice mix of, of uh, human action, the monsters don't play too big of a role until the end when the space monsters show up, but the human stuff is is really neat. On um, page two, we get a you know, full page of Godzilla crashing through uh, the city, and uh, right in front of him are uh, Harrison, Boxer, and Claire, and Boxer's a great on uh, just bollocks. <laughs> just, uh, what else can you say in, in that point? Um, on uh, you know we get to see some more of Godzilla stomping around Hikari gets right in uh, Dr. Pole's face and shoves him down to try and turn off the pheromone but uh, Pole is unconcerned because they very they see very soon the beast will be under our control which uh, appears to be the case. Uh, page eight, a uh, boxer finds Harrison in the uh, wreckage after they uh, get overrun by Godzilla and it's a very good uh, uh, five panels on this page here of Harrison. Uh, lying, his eyes staring blankly, and uh, um, Boxer begging him to forget his vow, and and tell him he's okay. And We find that Harrison would love to, and that the word, he says, the words refuse to be dislodged from the middle of my throat, and he can't speak right now. So, we've gone from him, you know, still resenting his father tremendously, and take his vow of silence to now he would love to speak to his father, but the monsters have taken that away from him and he can no longer speak. So that was a good character bit. Again, we've had a few of those the last couple of issues and, and that's a good one as well. Uh, page 12, panel 1, Godzilla is captured in a big energy cage and I don't see how this could possibly go wrong because anytime you capture monsters in an energy cage, they're always contained forever, Right? Right? I don't see any problem here. It's a good, a good image, too. Uh, it looks like a giant crackling ice cube that Godzilla is in. He's got almost a look of disbelief on his face uh, when he tries to walk right through it and gets zapped back. I thought that was pretty clever. Uh, Page 16 and 17 is a two-page spread of the space monsters appearing and um, the main image on the page is a close-up of Space Godzilla, but we've also got uh, seven inset panels here showing uh, the lightning crackling around the world as the other monsters uh, streak in from space. And now even though we had only seen three space monsters previously, we get four this time. I don't know if that was an editorial change or just they wanted to be a surprise. For the the last one, I'm not sure, uh, but the descriptions from uh, the Twin Fairies are actually quite nice, and I'm just going to read them to you. Uh, we see in Hong Kong, they say, The Beast in the East is an unholy marriage of alien flesh and mechanical destruction. And of course, that is Gigan, as uh, he flies right through the Chinese uh, fighter jets and then uses his jet cutter to cut a skyscraper in half from the, bo- from the top to the bottom, which I thought was, was pretty uh, pretty harsh right there. Next, the beast in Europe is an abomination, a gruesome mockery of our own defender. That clearly is Space Godzilla, as uh, he is in London using his corona beam to destroy uh, the city while he's flying around with his telekinesis. Space Godzilla looks so nice in comics. I always like Space Godzilla's look. I know his movie's not that great, but I'm such a sucker for the Space G. I need to buy that uh, S.H. Monster Arts figure of Space Godzilla. I need to get around to doing that. Uh, next, at the Great Pacific Garbage Patch in the North Pacific Ocean, uh, to our west, the alien spore fortifies itself with man-made filth, and that obviously is Hedra the Smog Monster. And uh, we see him just sitting atop the giant uh, garbage patch, and uh, he's being attacked by a battleship, and the, all their rockets and missiles are firing at him, are just they're plopping into him and flying right out the other end. Very neat, and of course that is true with Hedra, it's hard to kill something made of gelatinous sludge. Finally, this is the surprise one. New York City, the mutation to our north is of this earth, yet not of this earth. And then, as Mothra attacks, uh, they say, This is where we will make our final stand. And, trivial, this is Monster X from Final Wars. And. That, I thought, was a very interesting approach, because Monster X, we all know who Monster X is, I'm not going to say right now, but I guess technically he is a space monster. And I like that they make reference to that he's kind of from another dimension or another universe. I think what we're going to get to it is him being you-know-who, uh, who had already appeared in Kingdom of Monsters, but now he's going to be a different version, maybe a slightly cooler version. So... Uh, that was a neat touch, seeing Monster X. I'm not a huge fan of the Monster X design. Looks a little too Super Sentai for me for a Daikaiju film, but still pretty neat. And it was nice to see him. I didn't expect to see Monster X, of all things, show up. Of course, I'm kind of old school. You say Monster X, I'm thinking Jiger from Gamera vs. Monster X. But I guess that's, uh, that's you're not allowed to think that anymore. I don't know. Uh, the cover is by E.J. Sue, the standard cover, and it features... Uh, Boxer and Hikari running in the foreground as Godzilla crashes after them in the background. Godzilla's got kind of a crazy green-eyed thing going on. Uh, the incentive cover is by Matt Frank and is looks like something out of an anime. It's got Boxer sitting uh, crouched on the ground and before him are uh, Harrison and Claire. And then Hikari is behind him with like whited out eyes which is odd because she's a a scientist and not an alien or anything, and behind her is Godzilla with energy streaming out of his mouth and his tail whipping around. Both are good covers. The covers... IDW has always done good covers for Godzilla comics. I cannot lie about that, and I cannot deny that, and no different here. Uh, This is a good issue. I, I, I like the bits, the character bits between Hikari and Boxer. Uh, and the stuff with Boxer and Harrison, I always liked that. And then of course the introduction of the space monsters, this provides a really great ending, and you know business is picked up when the space monsters have shown up, so that is something that I think has done really well. And uh, again, we're we're out of the filler, I think now we're into the, the meat of where this story is headed. Godzilla number nine, again, the usual suspects. Dwayne Swierzynski, Simon Gain, Rhonda Pattison, Chris Mallory, Bobby Kurnow. I gotta say, I do like the consistent creative team from this. Other than that that one fill-in issue, um, this, this'll this look great collected in a hardcover or something with the whole crew. And the title is Part 9, The Night the Giant Monsters Came Home. In the ruins of Vancouver, Boxer, Hikari, and Harrison attempted carjack an old man out of his Chevy. But the old man has other ideas, proving that sometimes an old coot can be the most difficult roadblock of all. While this argument continues, the space monsters rampage across the world, and Godzilla struggles and fights to get out of his energy cell, erected by Dr. Pol's team. Despite Pol's confidence in the energy cell holding the King of Monsters, Godzilla escapes and stomps back to the Pacific, not noticing as Boxer screams his demands that he stay and face him like a man. Hikari tells Boxer, that she worked for Dr. Pole, who was the front of a third world consortium trying to grab a bit of the coming Monster Arms race. Boxer considers this, thinking that while this whole time he thought he had pulled one over on the folks in power, he was just their pawn all along, once again. Boxer and Akari go after Dr. Pole and demand to know where the other giant monsters are being held. The sequence with the old man, which starts right at the beginning and runs through pretty much the entire book, is hilarious. This old guy, driving, it looks like like a Chevy uh, Cobalt or something, he refuses to drive them where they want to go, and he keeps questioning all the parts of Boxer's plan and Boxer's story, and he keeps stymieing them every time. It, it's actually really funny. It's one of the best bits of comedy that we've seen in this series. For a series that's been mostly just action and machismo and monsters, There's this little comedy bit of this old man and his Chevy that's got two payments left before he's done uh, is just great. And this old man is, is hilarious. He has a, at one point he, he's questioning Boxer about the end of the world, and. Um, and he goes, I've been hearing this for years now. The world's going to end on such and such. No, it's actually going to end on such and such. My luck, I'll be long gone before it actually does end. I'd hate to miss the big show. And Boxer just Boxer just flabbergasted by this guy at that point. That, that is just great. Uh, page three, starting on page three, and uh, then continuing on page four and five, we get the space uh, space monsters attacking. Uh, Geigen is still in Hong Kong, and he's tearing a tearing a city apart, which is a really nice uh, little panel of Geigen. Um, takes about half the page here. Then we get a little two-panel piece of uh, Hedra destroying the battleship that he was fighting the last time. Hedra always translates good again to comics, just because. I think it's easier to show his oozing, the slippery mass uh, in a drawn page than it is to display that as a suit, you know, when you've got to keep it solid. Four and five is a two-page spread of Lamech, of uh, Space Godzilla just wading through London, and he's destroying Big Ben with his Corona Beam. That's just wonderful. I mean, if you're going dis- to attack London, you have to destroy Big Ben. I mean, Gorgo did it. It's just the way it goes. And Space uh, Godzilla just looks really fabulous in this bit. Very nice. Uh, page 9, panel 1, uh, we see a Big uh, G in the uh, energy cells. Godzilla is trapped in the uh, cage here that Dr. Pol has erected, and all I'm thinking of looking at is, yeah, right, okay, let me know how that goes, and Pol is clapping his hands together, and going, we've captured Godzilla, and it's like, yeah, talk to me in a couple of minutes, pal, I don't think that's going to last, so... Uh, and by page 13, Godzilla escapes, again, no real surprise, they helped him captive for about four pages, (laughs) what is that, maybe, maybe five minutes real time, and Godzilla escapes, in a very simple method, he just shoots it with his beam until it breaks down, it's like, you guys were gonna capture Godzilla, maybe you should've thought of that, he might use his beam. I'm just saying, you know, I'm not a military scientist, I don't invent giant things to capture giant monsters with, but, you know, just think it through, that's all I'm saying, so... Uh, Page 15, panel uh, 5, Boxer has one of the best lines of this series so far, as uh, the old man refuses to leave his car as Godzilla comes stomping at them, and Boxer turns and yells, Run for cover, you daffy bastard! And uh, then in the next panel we see Godzilla steps right past the old man. And this is pretty neat, this, this is a six-page grid, excuse me, a six-panel grid on this page, and Godzilla's foot impacts on the six-panel, and that one is turned askew about 30 degrees, so it's almost as if him landing his foot has caused the panel to shake out of order, which I thought was really nice. Uh, <laughs> page 16, panel 5, uh, as the tail is coming to swipe the old man, much like it did to Harrison, uh, Boxer once again says the tail. They never think about the tail, and he tackles the old man out of the way, and he says, you okay? And the old man grimaces and says, would you be okay if your colostomy bag just exploded? And it's like, that is nasty. Did not need to hear that. Thank you so much, Dwayne Swierzynski. But it's hilarious at the same time, so I can't really offer too much of a problem. Uh, page 19, Um uh, Hikari is talking about the, uh, the coming monster arms race, and she says the third world consortium that they want to put together is that they want to put together an army to rule the world, and Boxer's an army of what? And Hikari yells, an army of all the monsters you caught. And it seems that clearly Boxer wasn't looking very forward, he wasn't looking beyond his money and his desire for revenge on Godzilla, what are you gonna do with the giant monsters? You can't just leave them on an island. I mean, this isn't destroy all monsters, where, oh, just leave them on the island and they'll be happy there. In, in a world like this, you have to assume that somebody was wanted to do something with them, as long as they were alive and not trying to kill the monsters, which is clearly very difficult, if not impossible, in this continuity. So, it, it's a good, it, you know, it's, it's a slap in the face for Boxer, and I think as readers, I think we all suspected it, from you know, the, the the one scene we've gotten so far on Monster Island, but it hasn't been in the forefront, it's been kind of in the background, so we hadn't seen much of it. But this makes it very plain. Of course, it breaks the question, when they've only got things like Claire's Headache Gun, which has proven ineffective on multiple monsters, or Hikari's Pheromone, which only works on Godzilla right now, how do you control a monster army? Or do you simply drug them and then uh, drop them on your enemy and hope for the best? You know, it's uh, it's The idea of a giant monster being an allegory for a terrible weapon is an old one. I mean, this goes back to the original uh, Godzilla. But it it does raise a lot of, not so much moral or ethical questions, but simply logistical questions. How do you use a monster as a weapon if you can't control the monster yourself? So I don't think we're going to cover too much of those logistical questions, or even the moral or ethical ones, because this is an action series, but it's still food for thought. Page 20, panel 4, Boxer and Akari go to see Dr. Pohl, there's just a great panel, of Pohl is talking on the phone, he doesn't even notice, and Boxer is coming up behind him and is uh, taking out his guards, he uppercuts one of them hard enough to knock his helmet off, then he kicks another one right in the jaw, and then he finally uh, uh, reverse kicks the last one, catching him with his toes right underneath the, uh, the guy's ch- um, chin. And then uh, the last guard's gun falls into Boxer's hands and Boxer points it at the back of Paul's head and says, you're the second old man I've pointed a gun at today. You don't even want to know what the other guy did to his trousers. So, uh, what, what better than a colostomy bag joke than revisiting a colostomy bag joke? Uh, I really like this issue. I think the story has really kicked into high gear. We're at the real meat and potatoes, sort of the story here with the space monsters and um, Godzilla being uh, set free from his crystal cage, or energy cage, I should say. But one odd thing: this is twice now in this series where we have had a cliffhanger that has had no real resolution in the next issue. Um, you know, when when they were ca- when they were arrested, and uh, you know, Miss Murakami had them arrested. They broke out very easily, and it wasn't really much of a cliffhanger because it really wasn't a purpose to them being arrested. Here. Boxer says we need to go break Godzilla out of his box and then they actually just wait around with the old man and Godzilla breaks himself out of the box. So kind of an odd thing as far as cliffhangers not really being resolved in the manner that one would expect. But overall, really good issue, a great cover, I have the uh, painted cover by Bob Eggleton uh, which has. Godzilla in the foreground and Space Godzilla in the background, it is beautiful. If there was a poster of this, I would buy it right now. It looks amazing. I really like this cover. The Retailer Incentive cover is by Matt Frank and has all four of the space monsters on it with uh, Space Godzilla dominating the image. Another really good cover. I said it before and I'll say it again. IDW does some good covers. This one is one of the best as far as a Godzilla comic book cover that I've ever seen. So we are we're moving right along here. The story's in high gear, so let's not waste any time. Let's get right into the next issue. Godzilla number 10 from IDW. Once again, uh, the same uh, cast of characters on the creative team. Writer Dwayne Swierzynski, artist Simon Gain, colorist Rhonda Pattison letter of creative consultant Chris Mowry, editor Bobby Kernow, and our title this time out is Part 10, His Whole Life Was a Million to One Shot. Across the world, the space monsters rage unopposed. Space Godzilla levels London. Monster X blasts Mothra across Manhattan Island. Gigan tears apart Hong Kong, although Rodan intersects and in into the fray there. And Hedra sinks submarines in the Pacific. We then catch up with Harrison, who has found the hangar where Daniel Malman had stored the damaged Mechagodzilla. At the same time, Boxer and Akari have managed to get to the Hunt Atoll, where the captured Earth monsters are being held. Harrison gets the MG up and running, but its weapons are offline. After smashing out of the hangar, he comes face to icky face with Hedra. Back at Hunt Atoll, the two figures in charge, Everett and Fledger, discuss how they will redraw the lines of power in the world, when suddenly, Fletcher feels overwhelming attraction to Everett thanks to Hikari's pheromone spray. Boxer takes this opportunity to machine gun the island's power supply and shut the whole thing down. Harrison is outmatched against Hedra when Godzilla suddenly appears. Hedra knows the bigger threat and the two monsters tangle, giving Harrison a chance to make good on his escape. Back on Han Atoll, the monsters are all free and heading for the mainland, all except Kumonga, who creeps up behind Boxer and Akari. Harrison arrives in the MG and uses its PA system to talk to his father for the first time in years. The heroes board the robot, and Kumonga hitches a ride as across the world the space monsters now face resistance. Rodan is joined by Anguirus against Gigan, Batra and Titanosaurus attack space Godzilla, and Godzilla himself still tangles with Hedra. All right, things have really stepped up this time out. Uh, it's you know we got a lot, a lot of story going on. We're jumping around different places, and, and things are really starting to come to a head. I think it's very clear we're getting uh, the momentum rolling uh, on this, the space monster side of this story, and things are kind of rushing towards the find, the, the finale. But it's in a real good way. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of good action. A lot of, lot to like in these. Uh, page one. Uh, London is absolutely covered in Space Godzilla's gl- gl- glowing crystals, and uh, I really like this. Again, I'm a mark for the Space Godzilla, so you have to like uh, this scene just from the you know the crystals everywhere. That was one of my favorite parts of Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla, is seeing f- seeing Fukioka covered in crystals, and so seeing it in another city is, is very neat. Uh, page two, panel three. Uh, Monster X is still fighting Mothra in Manhattan and uh, Mothra's not really uh, being very successful against Monster X. uh, Monster X uses the triple I-beam attack that he had in Final Wars and I like the way this is drawn. I don't think it's actually inked. I think it's just penciled and then there's color and there's a special effect color like a CG sort of color put on top of it. It's very bright, it really stands out. Uh, Very nice use of the coloring for this attack that could look kind of corny But I really like the way this looks. Uh, The attack is very, very harsh. It knocks uh, Mothra all the way from Manhattan across the Brooklyn Bridge and uh, crashing into Brooklyn Heights. And actually as Mothra goes down at the UN, the Twin Ferries also collapse. And then we see uh, Monster X standing over Grand Central Terminal, which I thought was a nice touch being a New Yorker like I am. Uh, Page four, Geigen uses his jet cutter to slice another uh, skyscraper in half. What's interesting here is the second panel of this, we actually see inside as it tears apart all the different floors. And all the apartments and people inside their apartments are being, you know, scattered about as the floors and ceilings collapse and everything. It's kind of an an angle you don't really see with a giant monster attack that often. You know, the people view from the inside where it actually goes down, not on a large scale like this. It's uh, kind of eye-opening when you think about it. There's a line here from Harrison saying that uh, some people weren't even trying to fight, they were simply fighting to survive. And in the face of a monster like Gigan, I can see how that makes sense. Uh, Page 5, Rodan appears out of absolutely nowhere on the last panel here. Um, Gigan is looking at uh, a couple of people inside uh, the building, and we see Rodan come behind him, and he turns around and crash. Rodan slams into him at full speed and crashes him into the building. Very neat scene. Again, I like any time that Rodan uses his whole body as a weapon, uh, like in Gamera, or Gamera, Gatorade, a three-headed monster. So very, very nice, uh, and it really surprised me when Rodan showed up out of the blue like that, because he's managed to avoid being escaped, him and Godzilla, the only Earth monsters that have avoided being captured this entire series, so it was good to see Rodan pop up there. Uh, page 8, as we catch up with Harrison, he's gotten himself a haircut. Uh, Harrison has had long, kind of straggly hair this entire time, and now he's got a crew cut. So he took the time between uh, escaping from uh, the ru- ruins of British Columbia to California to cut his hair off, which is pretty nice. He's also sporting some military fatigues, and he's managed to uh, acquire a shotgun along the way. So obviously uh, he's been having some uh, some adventures that we haven't seen. On page nine, panels two and three, there's a neat sequence where Harrison is fighting the security at the uh, the hangar where the Mechagodzilla is stored. And uh, at the same time, Boxer is fighting security on the hunt Atoll. And the way the panels are drawn, they're in the exact same layout. basically it's the exact same pose as Harrison punches the security guard and then Boxer punches the security guard. And uh, it's interesting because it's kind of a it's it's obviously done directly because Harrison says in his caption, Uh, But that's not a problem. I use what my dad taught me about hand-to-hand combat, wonder what he'd think if he could see me now, and then obviously Boxer would be very proud because Harrison's doing exactly what Boxer uh, taught him to do. Uh, Pages 18 and 19 is a two-page spread of all of the Earth monsters escaping. It's really, really nice. Uh, We just have this lush, verdant jungle in this Pacific Island, and then um, right in the foreground is Anguirus, and uh, behind him in the air, Batra, and then splashing into the water, Titanosaurus. All three monsters look great. The skin tones on them especially are fantastic. Fantastic, excuse me. Uh, Titanosaurus, for instance, has all these little knobs and ridges all over his body, much like the suit actually does in Terror of Mechigodzilla. Batra has all his spines all over his legs and little fine spines and hairs all over his back. And um, Anguirus looks like a, looks absolutely fabulous here. I mean, all the spikes on his tail and on his shell. He's got a great look in his face. Really a very nice rendition of our three Earth monsters here. Uh, page 20, panel 3. Uh, as Kumonga is creeping up on Boxer and Ikari, we turn they turn around and we get a close-up of uh, Kumonga's face and, you know, there's no way to make uh, a giant uh, spider like Kumonga look friendly. There's absolutely no way to do it. And uh, <laughs> he's not, um, you know, they're not really sure what he's gonna do, but then Harrison shows up with the Mechagodzilla and uh, Kumonga doesn't, uh, we don't see how they communicate to Kumonga to, to hitch a ride. But he does, and in fact, in the last panel of page 21, Kumonga is riding piggyback, sort of, on the back of Mechagodzilla, and in a series that's been pretty deadly serious. This is a really kind of silly look. It's a little, this is something I'd expect out of a late Showa-era film, but it's just silly seeing this, and there's a great line where Hikari says, Are you sure Kumonga will be able to hang on the whole way? And Boxer says, Only one way to find out, and so they, they take off. Uh, Page 22, last page of the book, it's clear now the fight is on, as uh, the space monsters are now resisted all over the world, and you just know that the Battle Royale is about to begin next time, and uh, we definitely will be covering the next issue of this uh, later on on the Earth Destruction Directive. I'm going to see if I can do it, Uh, just do each one as they come out, just to finish this series up. Really strong issue here, Uh, really good cap to the issues that I was reading for this uh, episode of the show. And, oh, the cover! I cannot neglect the cover. Once more, the cover is a painted uh, cover by uh, Bob Eggleton. This time it is uh, Godzilla fighting Gigan, and Godzilla is blasting Gigan kind of point-blank with his atomic breath, and he's hitting Gigan right in the chest. And the space monster is kind of rearing back and roaring in, uh, in defiance. I really like this cover. The retail Tailor Incentive cover is by Matt Frank and has Godzilla leading the charge of the Earth monsters right at the reader. So we've got Godzilla over his shoulders, flying on either side are Mothra and Rodan and Batra, and then uh, beside him are Titanosaurus and Kumonga, and then uh, running almost past Godzilla is Anguirus, which is really nice. But again, all these covers are really good. Any of the covers you get on these you can't go wrong, so uh, the retail incentive ones some of them I might have been tempted to pay more for, but these painted ones are just beautiful. I, I love these these two Eggleton covers. Uh, that gets us caught up. Uh, overall, this is a, a much, much recommended series. Uh, I'm, I'm sure IDW is going to collect this at some point if you can't find the back issues, but definitely head to your local comic book shop or you know, use your favorite mail, um, online mail order retailer, However, you want to do it, and see, so pick these up. If you're a Godzilla fan, you'll definitely enjoy these. I really had a lot of fun reading them. They're not the deepest stories you're ever going to read, but at the same time, what do you really expect from a comic about giant monsters? I don't expect a super deep story that has me, you know, thinking about it hours after the fact. I like a story with a lot of action and a lot of monsters, and we get that. And we got humans that are not only tolerable, but are actually likable. You know, Boxer and Irv, and Harrison and Claire. These are these are characters that are really neat, and we really enjoy reading about them. And uh, we really enjoy seeing Harrison's growth and his relationship with Boxer, and Boxer playing his mega-macho-tough guy. So, really good stuff. So I heartily recommend these IDW Godzilla books and uh, pick up the uh, final three issues. The series is solicited to end at number 13, but... I don't know if it's actually going to end, or if it's going to take a break and come back with a new title, or how IDW is going to play that. We haven't seen that far ahead in this list, which we'll probably know more in about a month's time. Uh, we are going to take a, uh, a break here on Earth Destruction Directive. We'll be right back after these quick messages, so don't go away.
2: Imagine you enter the world of the Shogun Warriors. They're on the move. There's Raideen with Delta Wing missiles, Dragoon with a star shooter, and Mazinga with a rocket launcher. The Shoguns. Imagine you command them to defend freedom, protect justice, and challenge Edo. The Shoguns. They're ready to strike when you are. Shogun Warriors, Mazinga, Dragoon, Raideen, equipped with their own gear, each sold separately from Mattel.
1: Okay, we're back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Now you may recall in a previous episode, I talked about having picked up the entire run of Marvel Comics' Shogun Warriors comic, which started in 1978. And then the first of what I hope will be an ongoing series, we're going to talk about that comic book starting, appropriately enough, at number one. Now, uh, this was cover dated of... where's the cover date here? It says 1978, don't have a cover date, just 1978. Uh, and it says, uh, Marvel Comics Group, cost 35 cents, the Invincible Guardians of World Freedom, the Shogun Warriors. It says, first issue, collector's item. And standing tall in a cityscape is the, uh, super robot, Raideen, and we see two other robots silhouetted behind them. I wonder who they could be. In the, uh, little corner box here, we've got the heads of the three Shogun Warriors that we will meet in this series. Uh, covers by uh, Herb Trimpey and Al Milgram, very neat. Definitely stood out when I first saw it. Uh, I'd never, I didn't even know that Marvel had done a Shogun Warriors comic, so this definitely stood out to me when I saw it. So, let's get right into it. Our story begins with the giant robot Radine on the outskirts of Tokyo, where the machine is battling a giant monster, purple and green, with tentacles for arms and spiked wheels for feet. But it soon becomes obvious that Raydeen is being piloted, not by one person, but by three, of the names Genji, Savage, and Carson. These three are novices at that, as they still still seem to be learning how to operate Radine. The beast, who calls himself Rock fires missiles from his chest, but Genji is able to destroy the missiles with Radine's screamer hawk weapon. Rock scores a hit with a tentacle laser, knocking down the robot, but the pilots get Radine back on his feet and counterattack with their breaker blade sword. As the trio defend against Rock flying spiky foot, they reminisce about how they got here. We cut to several hours earlier, where hidden in a mountain range is the Shogun Sanctuary. There, a small team observes a volcanic explosion in the South Pacific and the appearance of Rock Corps. Springing into action, they activate their orbital satellite to summon their warrior prospects. The satellite reaches across the globe and teleports to three, Genji Odashu, a pilot, Ilango Savage, a marine biologist, and Richard Carson, a test driver, to the Sanctuary. Confused and angry about being snatched from their lives, the three demand answers. They are met by Dr. Tambura, head of the Shogun Sanctuary, who briefs them on the situation and shows them a visual history of the Great Chaos War which they have just been drafted into. The hologram video shows the trio how prehistoric Earth was visited by forces of evil who wanted to conquer it. But the ancestors of those who run the Shogun Sanctuary, the so-called Followers of the Light, came to Earth to stop them. The war lasted eons before the Followers of the Light sealed the last evil commander, Maor-Khan, in an underground base beneath a volcano, the volcano which just erupted. Maura Khan and his forces create monsters from a mix of sorcery and science in a pit of the hot blood of the earth to conquer the world and he has released Rock Corps. To fight the monster Dr. Tambora shows them the greatest weapon the Followers of the Light have the towering Shogun warrior called Raiden. The trio get a crash course in piloting the giant robot and then head off to battle Rock Corps. Back in the present the trio manage to decapitate Rokkor with the breaker blade, but Rokkor's true, magma-like form is revealed, oozing out of the robotic shell he had been inhabiting. Deciding it best to fight another day, Raiden leads Rokkor away from the city, getting him lost in the mountains. Our heroes return to the Shogun Sanctuary, where Dr. Tambora informs them that two of them will no longer pilot Raiden, and instead control the other Shogun warriors, Kumbatra and Dangard Ace. And next issue, the legend grows. Raideen, Combatra, Dangard Ace, Rock Rockcore, Carson, Savage, Genji, Tambura, and more all in Warriors 3. Ah, this was a pretty good way to start a series out, I think, with, uh, then again you've got a series about giant robots fighting monsters, so what else is there uh, to say about that? Uh, I like the cover. Like I said, I like that uh, they show Raiden, and Raiden looks very good, very accurate to his uh, anime style appearance. And the two other robots in silhouettes—a nice touch. It's uh, Combatron and Dangard Ace, of course. Didn't want to ruin that spoiler, just in case. Uh, page one is a splash page. Um, really could be the cover to a Raiden comic book. It's just a great shot of uh, Raiden and facing off against Rockcore Rockcore looks like he could have come straight from the anime. Um, and in the foreground, there's debris flying and people scattering. Like I said, this, uh, you, you redo the top here and you could uh, turn this into a cover for a reading solo comic, which is a pretty neat idea. Uh, I really like this, uh, this splash page, definitely sets the pace right away. Uh, page two, Rockcore talks like a very kind of broad bad guy. Uh, his line here is, uh, back servant of good, you face Rockcore and Rockcore claims this day for evil. So there's not a lot of subtlety in this comic, but again, it's a comic about giant robots, so I, I would hope there's not too much subtlety. Uh, we also know very quickly there are the three pilots, because we get three word balloons coming from Raideen, and, uh, and they say we and we a couple of times. So we know there's three pilots before we even know who they are. Uh, page three... The um, Radian uses the uh, Screamer Hawk, which is an anti-missile uh, hawk-shaped uh, weapon that's fired from his chest. Genji fires it. So we um, we have our weapons and attacks being named like on an anime, which again makes sense, considering that all of these robots come from super robot animes. Uh, we also uh, learn the names of the cast. It's dropped in very, very subtly. It's actually pretty neat. It's just dropped in as they're talking, so it doesn't seem like they're forcing in the names too much. I like that a lot. Uh, page six. I don't the pages aren't uh, the pages aren't numbered here, but you know they they jump with the with the ads. Page six, Raiden breaks out his breaker blade, which uh, again, a nice uh, nod to having the weapons and attacks being named like that. The breaker blade is a a small sword that uh, comes out of a little buckler shield that Radine wears on his right arm. Uh, very neat. I like that it's a, a little sword. Usually a giant robot has a giant sword, but Radine has other weapons that he likes to use instead. Uh, page 7, uh, Segway into the uh, flashback. <laughs> I think they went to the same um, Segway school that they use over in the Fantastic Cast, because uh, Carson just says, another close call, but we did it. Now, if somebody would answer me just one question, and it's unclear who says, what's that, Carson? Carson says, how did we ever get into this? So, uh, Page 10, we see the Shogun Sanctuary. It's uh, a very kind of odd-looking building, very futuristic. The it's described as being shaped in antiquity, but not exactly. There's also a giant yellow ankh on the front of it. It looks kind of like Dr. Fate lives there. Which would kind of put a whole new spin on this, if besides giant robots and monsters we also had you know, Dr. Fate. That would be something else. Um, let's see. Uh, page 11. Um, as the Dr. Tambora and his crew prepare to recruit the warriors. Apparently, the followers of the light have a teleporting satellite why don't they just use that to teleport the monster away? That is never addressed. I, I don't, it, it, it's kinda convenient that they have this satellite that can teleport things, but it's like, okay, why don't we use it for something other than pulling these poor people into, their, uh, into the Shogun Sanctuary. Uh, page 14 to 15, this is our introduction to our three heroes, uh, Genji, Savage, and Carson. And um, it's very much uh, kind of a typical sort of Bronze Age exposition. As the characters kind of announce things, um, you know, Alongo Savage—he—he he was in a bath escape, and uh, I think it's called a bath escape. I'm kind of like Scott Gardner—is it, is it bathoscope, bath escape? Anyway, Scott Gardner and Andrew Layon—I think you don't know how to say that. Anyway, uh, Doctor Tambura is telling him who he is, and Savage goes, "I don't care who you are. You've no right to kidnap me. How do you think my assistants up above are reacting to the disaffear- disappearance of my bath escape?" And uh, and then, uh, you know, it's similar with Genji and Carson. It's it's This is very kind of typical stuff that you get in a Bronze Age book when you introduce new characters for them to, to talk at somebody else in order to inform the reader. So it, it's a little charming, but it, it is kind of heavy-handed. But it was typical at the time. Uh, page 16, this is very quaint. As uh, Tambora goes to show them, uh, the history of, of the Chaos Wars, holograms gets a footnote. And the, the footnote from uh, Al Milgram is three-dimensional laser photographs. I liked that. I thought it was... You know, again, it, it's a different time. In 78, might not know what a hologram is. Now we just kind of take it uh, for granted. So I thought that was very nice. Page 17 uh, begins the the history. And again, it's just kind of a straight info dump. It's not really very elegant, but certainly gets the job done. Again, this was something that you would see in the bronze age when you were introducing a new character or a new series just to get everything out there right away and get the concept established. So, again, it's it could it have been done in a more subtle manner, yes, but you know, we need to get back to robots fighting giant monsters. So, you know, there's no no time wasted here. Uh, page 19, we get introduced to Mawarcon, Lord Mawarcon, and his agents of evil. And what's interesting here is that uh, Dr. Tambora specifically says that they create their monsters through what he calls a perverted alchemy of sorcery and science. And so I thought it was interesting that as far back as 1978, that was a viable concept of the the mixing of both magic and science, or the relative... quality of magic and science, so I thought that was pretty neat. Also, I like that uh, they talk about this giant pit, and it's this pinkish-red with black uh, bubbles all through it, and they call it the hot blood of the earth, and that just made me think of big trouble in little China. You know? uh, page 22, It's vertic- the vertical half of the page uh, is Radine, as has a, these introduced to the uh, pilots, and it really shows the great scale because uh, Tambora and Carson and Savage and Genji are standing on a, a little control gantry that's elevating down and uh, they come in and they see Raiden, and he just towers above them. And what I like here is that Raiden is standing with his arms rail straight at his side so he almost kind of looks like the large Jumbo mashida Shogun Warrior's toy of Raideen a little bit. And I, I'm willing to bet Herb Trimpey probably had him as reference. The way his fists are clenched and everything. It, I bet you Herb Trimpey didn't even realize it, but he had a, a toy that lots of kids would envy standing in his desk so he could uh, draw Raideen for this shot. Uh, page 23, the team has uniforms. They, matching uniforms. They all look, oddly enough, they look more like um, Mazinger Z. A little bit than they do for Raiden because they're wearing um, you know jumpsuits that have uh, you know red shoulders, blue chest, white stomach, then blue trunks, white leggings, and then blue uh, boots with red trim, and then white helmets with uh, a red visor and uh, blue goggles. So they look more like Mazinger Z to me than they do Radiant. I just think it's hilarious that they've got matching uniforms already. I mean, I guess if you've already been teleported halfway across the world, told about a great war between good and evil that involves giant monsters, and been told you get to pilot a giant robot, what's a uniform on top of that, you know? No big deal. Uh, page 26, back in the present, as the fight goes on, the Breaker Blade is used to great effect as the uh, our three heroes... Uh, rear back and chomp Rockcore's head off, and there's no gore or anything because we see there's, there's uh, gears and other machine parts inside. There's a great sound effect of sclop. It's like, oh, you don't get sound effects like sclop anymore. Uh, page 27, after they decapitate him though, all the uh, pinkish uh, it looks like uh, it looks like somebody spilled strike strawberry jam basically out of his uh, mechanical body, but it reforms into a uh, magma-style monster. It Looks like something from Inhumanoids, you know, something like it looks a little bit like Metlar, uh, except all lava. I just thought it was an interesting, uh, you know, coincidence. I mean, I guess there's only so many ways you can do a magma-style monster. But he is pink, which I thought was interesting, and he's got the uh, the '90s Rob Liefeld mouth with the goo between his teeth. Except in this case, since he's made of molten rock, that kind of makes more sense, so. Um, then finally, page uh, 31, as the heroes get back to Shogun Sanctuary, we meet Combattra and Dangard Ace. Two giant, more giant robots, and if one giant robot is good, three is even better. And uh, I tell you what, as a last page uh, cliffhanger, to a story that already introduced one giant robot, introducing two more—pretty good uh, shot, uh, right there at getting you to pick up that second issue. Overall, I, I thought this issue was had a lot of action, and uh, as a basis to store and a, and a basic kind of story to keep it all together. But that's fine. I mean, this, this is a, not only a licensed comic; it's a licensed comic based on robots that were brought over to the U.S. with no story whatsoever. So this was created whole cloth for the comic. So given that, I think it's a pretty good a pretty good uh, setup. It knows its target audience and puts a shot right across the bow. You know, very broad concepts of good and evil. You know, the, this is a comic for kids that were playing with their Shogun Warrior robot toys. This is not something necessarily for the more discerning comic critic. This is something that was fun. You know, if, uh, I wasn't born in 1978, but if I was, and if I was a kid who picked this up off the uh, newsstand in 1978, I would definitely be looking to pick up that next issue, if only not to see the other giant robots. I mean, yeah, you'd also want to see if they can beat Rock Core, but we already saw this cool fight with one giant robot, now we've got two more. I mean, that is the entire... Uh, appeal of Shogun Warriors right there was giant robots in action. And uh, this delivers it in spades. Very cool issue. Uh, so hopefully we will get to issue number two next time out, and we'll keep the Shogun Warriors love going. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. The internet is
2: really, really great. For Guy Gardner Podcast. i got a fast connection, so I don't have to wait. For Guy Gardner Podcasts There's always some new site For Guy Gardner Podcasts
0: I browse all day and night
2: For Guy Gardner Podcasts
0: It's like I'm surfing at the speed of light
2: For Guy Gardner Podcasts The internet is for Guy Gardner Podcasts The internet is for And sometimes Kyle Rayner Podcasts Why you think the net was born Guy Gardner Podcasts Just One of the Guys is a weekly internet radio show dedicated to bring you reviews, commentary, and a heartfelt defense of the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, the two Earth-based Green Lanterns who always seem to get dumped on. Over the next several years, I will be covering the Green Lantern books from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004. I'll also be covering the Guy Gardner solo series, as well as any other media that catches my fancy. The show can be found on iTunes by searching for Just One of the Guy's podcast. Or by going to the website justonedeguys.libsyn.com. So be sure to tune in every Friday for a fun-filled look at the Green Lantern Corps, hosted by me, Sean Engel. It's just as enjoyable as the search for the subject that this song is actually about. the yeah. Just one of the guys does not officially certify that this podcast is more enjoyable than pornography. All right, and we're back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Normally this is
1: the point in the show when I would read some emails or feedback from the listeners, and uh, email bag is empty right now, so please, I'm putting out the call. If you're listening to the show, if you're enjoying it, not enjoying it, uh, something you liked, something you didn't like, please just toss me an email, Directive at yahoo.com. I respond to every email I get, and I always read the emails on the air, so if you're interested, please get in touch, and uh, we'll um, we'll cover your email here on the show. Uh, I've gotten a few requests on the message board just to talk about a few upcoming feature film Daikaiju projects. First up, um, later this year, actually uh, July 12th here in the United States, Pacific Rim, the uh, giant Mecca versus Daikaiju film by Guillermo del Toro is going to be released. It'll be in uh, 3D and IMAX 3D and of course for Luddites like myself, regular old 2D theaters. Uh, The trailers we've gotten for this so far really look fantastic. The The mecha are called Jaegers, and they look sort of like a combination of a super robot and a real robot. To my eye, they look like if you had taken a super robot style uh, robot and put them into a real robot setting, which kind of makes sense when you consider it's live action. It kind of has to look like a real robot. The monsters uh, look pretty good too. The ones we've seen so far look kind of like the pterosaurs from Privateer Press Game Monster Apocalypse, and that's. No complaints from me. It's a good game and some good monster design. So Pacific Rim starting to get a lot of buzz. It looks really good. Uh, I saw a great thing the other day. You know Pacific Rim has hit the big time because The Asylum is making a mockbuster version of it called Atlantic Rim. That doesn't even make any sense at all. I don't think how you can have an Atlantic Rim. But uh, looking forward to that one. Uh, there's a couple of films coming out this year that I want to see in the theater that... Uh, Pacific Rim is definitely one of them. Also, uh, coming out next year is the new version of Godzilla from Legendary Pictures, uh, directed by Gareth Edwards, and we have a cast of uh, Aaron Taylor-Johnson, who was the guy from Kick-Ass, uh, Brian Cranston, who a lot of people know from Breaking Bad, but I remember also from Malcolm in the Middle, uh, Elizabeth Olsen, the younger sister of uh, Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen, who apparently is kind of an indie darling. I don't know if I've ever seen anything with her in it. Uh, Ken Watanabe, who, uh, known to most genre fans for playing, uh, sort of playing Rachel Gould in Batman Begins. And, uh, we got a few other character uh, actors here as well. We do are going to have apparently a cameo by Akira Takarada, who of course played Ogata in Godzilla and was in Half Human and Martha vs. Godzilla and King Kong Escapes and Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster and several other, uh, classic uh, Toho Showa era films. Now filming has started on Godzilla. It's filming right now in Vancouver, British Columbia, up in Canada. And uh, like I said, it's on schedule right now for May 16th, 2014 release. Nothing really is known of the plot at this point. Uh, some leaked cast, uh, cast um, set photos I've seen indicate that it will take place in the United States because there's U.S. military vehicles being seen on the set, so more information on that as it becomes uh, available. What's interesting, I didn't know this until I was uh, doing a little research before this, but right now Yoshimitsu Banu is one of the producers, and Banu you might remember as the director of Godzilla vs. the Smog Monster. Started out as the Godzilla 3D to the Max IMAX project from a number of years ago that was supposed to feature a return of some sort of uh, Hedra that never came to fruition. So I didn't realize this actually grew out of those discussions, which is kind of interesting when you think about it. Alright, so what are we going to be covering next time? I think I'm going to take a somewhat less uh, involved approach next time. I don't think we're going to cover quite as much. We haven't talked about any uh, Godzilla video games in a while, so I'm going to talk about a couple of those. In fact, I'm going to talk about three ones in particular. I'm a big fan of handheld and portable gaming. Uh, I've had a number of handheld systems over my lifetime and right now my favorite is uh, still my trusty Game Boy Advance. So I'm going to be talking about uh, a trio of Godzilla games that have come out for the Game Boy. First the original uh, Japanese uh, Godzilla puzzle game, which was released on the original Game Boy. Then the second uh, Godzilla game, which was also released for the original Game Boy, which was a kind of side-scroller type of brawler type game. And then, finally, the uh, Game Boy Color game, Godzilla the Series, based on the uh, Eponymous cartoon, which, again, is a side-scrolling game. Kind of a shooter, actually, if you can believe that. So we're going to cover those. We're also going to take a look at issue number two of Shogun Warriors, and we'll get to all your cards, letters, and emails if you send any in. So until next time, keep them stomping.
0: This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Daikaiju podcast, hosted and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, and presented by the Two True Freaks podcast network, available at twotruefreaks.libson.com. All characters, stories, images, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This is a fan work designed to honor the rich history of Japanese giant monster movies and culture. The opinions expressed on Earth Destruction Directive are my own, and I receive no money for this work. You can send feedback to our email address, Directive at yahoo.com. All feedback is welcome, and if you send it an email, I will respond to you on the show. Alternately, you can leave a comment at the home of Earth Destruction Directive on the Internet, earthdestructiondirective.blogspot.com You can also check out the Two True Freaks Forum at www.forum4geeks.com And you can find me on Twitter with the handle LJACONE That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E And be sure to head to twotruefreaks.libson.com to check out all the other fine quality Two True Freaks podcasts available. Thanks for listening And come back next time for more Earth Destruction Direct. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.